According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Hebrews. And if you would, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Kicking off a, uh, a new chapter here this morning, Hebrews chapter 5. And in reality, uh, if I was in charge of versification, which I'm not, but all of these were versified back in a long time ago, um, I would have started chapter 5 with 414. I would have started f- with 414. I would have taken 14, 15, 16 and made those verses 1, 2, and 3 in chapter 5. But be that as it may... Um, it is a bridge that those three verses at that end chapter fourteen uh, end chapter four are a bridge that carries across from the greatness of God's King Son to the greatness of God's Priest Son. And so, uh, when Zane Hodges did his outline on the Book of Hebrews, he he titled chapters one through four God's King Son and chapters five through ten God's Priest Son. Of course, it's the same Son. It's God the Son, our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, who is both King and Priest. And uh, what he has to look forward to when he comes in second advent is to not only sit on the throne of David, ruling as the king of kings and lord of lords, but to bring his Melchizedek priesthood from heaven to the earth. See, he's waiting to be king on earth, but he's not waiting in his priesthood. He is a priest today. He already is functioning in his priesthood today. We fix our eyes on Jesus, and he is the apostle and high priest of our confession today. And so while I'm thankful for everything we looked at in four chapters, chapters 5 through 10 just builds on that and takes it to some wonderful places, things that you and I are going to enjoy very much so starting today because our priesthood is like nothing this world has ever seen before. All right? So in verse five, uh, 1 of chapter 5, it says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And that applies to earthly high priests. And we're going to see the parallel. Many things apply, but many things crucially do not because Jesus is sinless and does not need to offer a sacrifice, first of all, for himself. And so that's, uh, again, a huge, a huge benefit. All right, before we get started on this, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father to humble us and to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth. Rejoicing, Father, over your faithfulness, the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for his teaching ministry that the Holy Spirit is actively engaged, communicating through the speaker and receiving the communication through the hearers. We thank you, Father, that we combine spiritual with spiritual as the word of God goes forth spiritually and is received spiritually on the part of each believer priest here today. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to bless us, to open the eyes of our understanding, to Lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, remember how chapter 4 concluded with our high priest. Since we have a great priest, uh, let me just read 14, 15, 16 now. 
Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a call to worship. That's a call to our priesthood. And every one of us should have every encouragement to draw near. There is no reason why we should not draw near today because we have every right to be here. We are in Christ and He is the one that is the heir of all things. He is the one that is at the Father's right hand. That uh, in contrast to earthly high priests, they passed within a veil. He passed through the heavens. He passed to the reality of heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. And so we have such a high priest. And since we have a great high priest, and uh, that is our admonishment. Now, beginning in chapter 5, we're going to start to spell out the comparisons and the contrast, the things that are similar, the things that are greatly different. And thank God that they are different, that we have, uh, we don't have a high priest that's going to die and going to leave us stuck with, uh, you know, his knucklehead son who might be saved or not, who might be a decent high priest or not. And, uh, and the process there. Now we have a high priest who holds his priesthood eternally. And he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. This is why we are saved to the uttermost in uh, the eternal security language of the book of Hebrews. And so we start with a look at verse 1. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men. And it's kind of a nice the, 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 I don't know if it's poetry technically, but it's a nice writing style that is linking the about men and the from men considerations here. So taken from among men as a participle and then appointed on behalf of men is the verb. And so it's from men and on behalf of men that, uh, that this verse stresses. Every high priest taken from among men. That's a point. He's one of them. He was selected from among them. And the, the point of emphasis then on having been taken, the participle that we have here, having, having been taken, where was he taken from? From among men. Sometimes that's significant. Uh, it's, it's significant for different reasons in different settings. He told David, he said, I took you from among the sheep so that you could be a shepherd as a king to my people Israel. And that was significant. Having been taken from among sheep, he's qualified to be a king. Now here, taken from among men and then appointed on behalf of men. That's the pattern. Now, the Levitical high priests are specifically taken from among Jews, and they are specifically placed in charge of the God things on behalf of Jews. All right? Every high priest, from Aaron all the way down, every high priest, well, I'm not so sure about the later years because the Romans were interfering and some other interference was happening on Herod's behalf. Um, but by design, every high priest was going to be a descendant of Aaron, was going to be of, of the tribe of Levi. There certainly were no German high priests. There were no Greek high priests. There were no Russian high priests. Us Gentiles, we were stuck out. All right. We didn't have, there was no Gentile high priest that could minister to us Gentiles. It was a Jewish high priest that was appointed to minister to the Jewish people in their priestly service. And then the Jews were then the testimony to the Gentiles to be the light to the world. And so that's the contrast. Because Jesus Christ, however, as the second Adam, is taken from among all humanity in Adam. 
And there's an there's a application to be made here because his ministry, uh, that is the gospel, is targeted towards everybody that's in Adam. And then his priestly ministry of intercession is targeted towards everybody in Christ, everyone in the second Adam. And so it's a, it's a neat concept to break it down and to study it in these terms. But the concept of identification is important. There is no priest that's lording it over uh, the non-priests. There's no priest that, that's superior, that can't identify. Everyone is taken from among the group to which they then uh, uh, serve and, and, and minister towards. And this becomes important. No less so in the church age, by the way. Now, every one of us is a believer priest, but does that make us better than the non-priests? Of course not, because we're saved by grace through faith. And so we want to exercise our priesthood the same way that, that Jesus exercised His. And we want to be sacrificial towards those that do not yet know our Lord and Savior. And so uh, this is what we see. So every high priest, take it from a man, among men, is appointed. And what's he appointed for? The God things. The things pertaining to God, the God things. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Notice this is an office that has function. It's not an office that's an empty title. It's not an office. In other words, he's not appointed to be a high priest, and then that's just it, is a state of being. It's, this is what I am. No, it's this is what I do. If I am a high priest, then I, w- I am designed to minister. And we're all priests. We're designed to minister. And so it stresses the functionality of it here. The purpose clause for such an appointment is to offer both gifts and sin sacrifices. The purpose clause for such an appointment is to offer both gifts and sin sacrifices. And if you've never considered the fact that those are two different things, uh, today would be a good day to start considering the fact that those are two different things. And just jot it down and consider, wait a minute, what is a gift? And what do we give to God as a gift? I understand the sin sacrifice, that's the easy part. You know, the sin sacrifice because we're all sinners, you know, I think we all can recognize that, that we fall short of the glory of God. We all recognize that we're sinners. And if we're going to approach God's holiness, we can't do so on our own terms. We have to do so in the manner that He prescribes. And so a sin sacrifice is, is, is from, in my thinking anyway, easy to understand. A gift, though, is uh, a gift to God may not be easy to understand. And in fact, it might be entirely overlooked. The fact that a free will offering, a votive offering, a gift, in the sense that why are they called gifts? Are we giving them to God? Yes, we are giving them to God. Our offerings are to God. When you give in the grace box, you're giving to God. See, and his state and his you know delegated lampstand of Austin Bible Church. But ultimately, it's a gift to God. And we give to God in our service. We give to God in our prayers. We give to God in every sacrifice. We give to God. We should think of it on this basis. We are the gifters giving to God. And uh, we can start thinking in these terms. Um, and maybe this is a, a useful uh, season, this graduation season, this time of year. You know, there's a lot of gifts. And you've got to figure out, well, what, what can I give? And what should I give? And what's appropriate to give? And whatever. And, and then you're giving a gift to God. You're thinking, how does that work? <laughs> what does God need? Well, gifts aren't always about a need, are they? Because he needs nothing. What does God want? Ah, now we might start answering. 
And how do we give the one who has all things? Because everything's from him anyway. If, he's, if, if all things come from him, right? Ultimately speaking, we're just objects of his grace. He's already given us everything. And so when we give to him, it's in a sense, it is giving back. It is a, 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 not because uh, we're trying to pay him back, we're trying to earn something, we're trying to make up for what we did wrong, but because we have a grace capacity, and that's what we're going to see when I start advancing these slides. We have a grace capacity now, shaped by his thinking, that wants to give. Not because we have to, not because we feel we're obligated. Nothing should be grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. So we want to be motivated then in our priesthood. The things that we give, the free will sacrifices that we give, are given on a want-to basis, not a have-to basis. And uh, these principles are going to be important as well. So we see it in Hebrews 5.1, the purpose clause for the appointment, in order to offer. Okay? And an offering. You wonder why it's called an offering? You know, is it, think about the verb to offer. If I offer you something, what am I offering you? Whatever I'm offering you, I offer you something. I, I offer you my pen, okay? And you can have my pen if you want my pen. No. <laughs> Bad offer. I like my pen. But an offering is, is, is that the very word conveys the concept of a gift. It is an offer. It is a gift. And it's freely given. It must be freely received. That's the grace exchange. And it's a blessing to be able to do so. Uh, Hebrews 7 In verse 28, I love this pen so much, I would sometimes uh, pay a reward for a child that would find it when it was lost. Uh, Hebrews 7 and verse uh, 28. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. There's a contrast. Isn't that beautiful? And uh, the blessings of our high priest, we've got the greatest high priest ever in the history of high priests. And he is not uh, a sinner. He is not weak. He doesn't have to bring sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He has no sins of his own. He is the lamb without spot or blemish. And on that basis then, he can provide the eternal sacrifice that no earthly high priest could ever offer. And so he is appointed, appointed. And then chapter 8, the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest. It's kind of a big deal. It's the way that he summarizes seven chapters before he takes us into chapter 8. That's the main point. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister. We were looking at that last hour because we have that verb in, in Philippians. A minister. This is a server minister. This is a liturgical minister. He's not just an office holder that has a title that doesn't do anything. He actively serves. He actively ministers in the true tabernacle. The sanctuary in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not men. The heavenly reality, not the earthly replica. He serves in the heavenly reality as the apostle and high priest of our confession. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sin sacrifices. You see, there it is again. To offer both. You know, if all you do all day long, if, if, you're, if the 100% of your prayer life, 
is confession of sin? <laughs> if, if 1 John 1, 9 is the only prayer you ever pray, what are you doing? So offering sin sacrifices, okay, that's a legitimate Levitical function, but there need to be other gifts as well that we're offering up, sweet-smelling savers that we're offering up. And we're going to see, by the time we get to chapter 13, we've got all kinds of sacrifices as, as Melchizedek church-age believer priests. We offer up by doing good and sharing. We offer up the fruit of lips to give thanks to His name. We offer up praise. Our praise is a, is a sacrifice, see. And it should be mindful, not mindless. So when we get into this mantra of these repetition praise choruses, I think it, by definition they don't qualify. Because the praise is a volitional, willful, thoughtful, sweet-smelling savor before the Lord. It's not a mindless, thoughtless, repetition, drone, get into a trance state kind of emotional feeling. So um, whatever else happens after that. So every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest, that is Jesus, also have something to offer. Now let me ask you something. He ascended up high. When he ascended, he cleansed that heavenly tabernacle. We're going to see that in chapter 9. He cleansed it with his own blood. He ever liveth as a, as a high priest, the apostle and high priest of our confession, but there are no sin sacrifices ever again in heaven. That's done. The once and for all sin sacrifice was completed at Calvary. So the only thing he brings now are gifts. He is constantly, constantly offering gifts to God the Father. That's his blessing as the high priest of our confession. Should be our blessing as well. Because our priesthood has nothing to do with sin sacrifices. Our blessing is to give gifts. And we do so in our priesthood. And we'll see this chapter by chapter as the priesthood unfolds. <coughs> so he's got to have something to give. And good thing he's in heaven because if he was on earth, he would not be a priest at all because he's the wrong tribe. The, uh, the Levites are the priests on earth that offer uh, according to the law and they serve a copy and a shadow. But Jesus does not serve a copy and a shadow. He serves the reality. And that's, uh, that's what we get into there. All right. So what does it mean when we offer a gift? Offering gifts to God is a grace expression. Offering gifts to God is a grace expression. This priestly function reflects God's gifts to us. Offering gifts to God is a grace expression. It's not a payback. And it's not an attempt to pay back an earlier gift. It is a new gift on the basis of a, of a frame of reference, on the basis of a mental attitude that is shaped. The more we are shaped by God's grace, the more we want to express God's grace. And so it is a grace expression. Now guess what? When we offer a gift, uh, the other person may not want it. The other person may not take it. We may offer a gift and the other person may say, no, thank you. For whatever reason, right reasons, wrong reasons, whatever. A gift is a gift. It must be freely given, must be freely received. And, and sometimes somebody brings you a gift and you're not sure even what it is. <laughs> so you don't know what to think. Okay? But if it's your child who brings you this gift, does that make it special? 
I tell you, I found stuff. When my mother died, I found stuff I, I forgot I even gave her. But she kept it. Kept it for 70 years or minus whatever. She kept it a long time. I found it and said, wow, why did mom keep that? That stupid, I mean, well, it had no real value, but it had her value to her because it was her child. And it was her child loving her, providing her that gift. And so when we offer gifts to the Father, does He ever reject them? If our heart is right, if we're in fellowship, if we are truly giving a greatest gift to God the Father in our praise, and our thanksgiving, in our service, and our helps, in all that we do to the glory of Jesus Christ, that's a gift to God the Father. And so when we do that, does He ever say, oh, no thanks, I don't want that? No, no, no. He accepts it. He receives it. He himself has the grace capacity to appreciate the gift. See, there's a grace capacity to give it. There's a grace capacity to receive it. And there's appreciation both when it's given and received. And it's a marvelous thing the Father designed. Satan can't even replicate this. He's a great counterfeiter. There's no counterfeit for grace. All he can do is put out an alternative like legalism or works or something that just doesn't try to counterfeit, just tries to replace it in a sad sort of way. So in Matthew 5, um, verses 23, yeah, 23 and 24, we're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, and these should be familiar to us in Matthew 5. Verse 23 says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and isn't that an interesting choice of words too, the idea of presenting. Does it have, does, does, when you present... Does that have anything to do with a present? You wonder why, where do these words come from anyway? So we present your offering as you offer your present at the altar. And while you're there in the midst of it, you remember that your brother has something against you. Say, oh, wait a minute. Okay. Now, why is that a problem? It's a problem because these offerings have to be given in a grace capacity. They have to be given in, a, in, a, in the, the, the way that honors Jesus Christ. And so you can be disqualified from the right mental attitude, the right facet of fellowship in order to give a gift. And so you could be right there at the altar and then you remember something. So leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then you can come back and you can present your offering. That's, that's significant. That says if you're in church for the wrong reason, make it, you know, deal with that and make sure you're here for the right reason. And walk back outside if you have to. <laughs> okay? But you can do first John 1 9 inside too. But I'm just saying, if you're here for the wrong reason, get here for the right reason. And that's in every priestly sacrifice. That's every offering. Your presence here today is an offering. You could have been on a golf course somewhere or doing whatever, but you have assembled in the name of Jesus Christ. This is an offering. This is time that you've dedicated. This is, this is uh, uh, your presentation before the, as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're presenting yourself. And that's an offering. But if it's for the wrong reason, you need to stop and make sure, deal with that so that you can be here in the right reason. And so that's the, uh, the example there. Luke 21. 
It's also not a competition. It's not a comparison. It's not whether your present is bigger than somebody else's present. If you're trying to give the bigger present, right, you, uh, you gave a, uh, an espresso machine and uh, the other people gave a car, right? Oh, and then all of a sudden, like father of the bride, right? You gave a, an espresso machine and then the parents of the, of the groom gave a car. And all of a sudden, your gift just seems like nothing. It seems like, wow, I gave a, I gave a little cheap gift and they gave a car. And, oh, I feel terrible now about my gift. Okay? Well, why do you feel terrible about your gift? You gave what you wanted to give. You gave what you knew they would appreciate. And it's not a competition. And so, when Jesus is seeing these rich guys, and most of them hypocrites, <clears throat> Luke 21, he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And you saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. These are the lepta coins, the smallest denomination in the, in the Roman world there. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. You know, maybe even all of them put together, right? All y'all. He did more than, she did more than all of them. For they, all out of their surplus, gave into the offering. And so, basically, they took care of themselves first and had something left over and figured, eh, why not? I can spare it. It's left over. Yeah. And we can go make a big splash. And um, I'm not sure if this is the one. It might be the Gospel of Mark. One, one of these accounts, uh, the, the language actually kind of, um, you can hear the ringing. You can, it, makes, it emphasizes the sound of the coins as they're ringing in, right? Like, like you're making a big splash. Like you could just quietly slip the coins in there or you could just slam them in there. So there's a big jingle, jangle, jingle and everybody's all impressed with, ooh, you know. They put in so much into that pot. And here's this little widow that probably nobody else noticed until he said, do you see her? And uh, she puts those two little coins in there. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. She put on her living expenses. We use the same expression. We make a living. We earn a living. What do you live on? That's what's what you live on. That's the, it's a, it's a definition of life that applies to the funds that uh, keep you alive. And so she wasn't giving out of a surplus. These were her living expenses. And she put them in there. And so it's a grace expression. We want to have the right grace attitude. We want to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. We want to make sure we're in fellowship one with another. We want to make sure that we're not trying to exalt ourselves by making a big splash, that, uh, that uh, we are giving first fruits, not excess, that we are giving uh, in all the principles of grace giving as we understand it through uh, the Old and New Testament. You see, because this priestly function is a reflection of God's gifts to us. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a grace gift to us, not of works, lest no man should boast. We are the objects of such grace blessings, salvation, and everything that follows. We are the objects of such grace blessings. We should then become expressions of grace in what we give, expressions of grace in what we do, primarily operating before God. Everything we do is just not being nice around other people. 
It's about giving gifts to God. See, through doing good and sharing, through thanksgiving and praise, and the other aspects we're going to see are Melchizedek priesthood sacrifices in the church age. And they're all gifts to God. As far as a sin sacrifice is concerned, this is a faith expression. This is a faith expression. Offering a sin sacrifice is a faith expression. By the way, it's one we don't have to do anymore. The Old Testament saints had to bring sin offerings. We don't. When we confess our sin, that's not a sin offering. That's a cleansing mechanism to put us back in fellowship. It's not a sin offering. Jesus Christ offered the once and for all sin offering. That's why He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins because the payment's been made. But it is a faith expression. This priestly function reflects the price God paid to satisfy His righteousness and justify the free grace He provides. You see, and until justice is satisfied, yes, He's a God of grace, but He can't express that grace in the ways that He can after justice is satisfied. See, because He can't express grace to the sacrifice and detriment of His own righteousness, His own justice. He can't express His love to the detriment of His own righteousness and His own justice. And we've taught this before. We should be clear on how this works. It's, uh, it's curious to me because um, the people I discuss, the atheists I talk to, they, 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 they don't like evil in the world. They think it's the proof that there is no God. And the whole problem of evil, because if there was a God, then He wouldn't let this happen. Why does a good God let bad things happen? Okay? And so they just, they're just left in their conundrum as if, well, He's either not good or He doesn't exist or He's not all-powerful or He can't do anything about it or whatever. They, they view the problem of evil as their uh, evidence for God's non-existence. Of course, we understand the fallen world in which we live. We understand the consequences of sin, the consequences of volition. And it's not because God doesn't love us. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So there is an answer to all this evil that we're looking at. And uh, if you want to hear it, we can talk about it. <laughs> all right. This priestly function reflects the price that God, God paid to satisfy His righteousness and justify the free grace that He provides. And if you might remember this, uh, I don't remember what year that was, but we taught Romans not too long ago. In Romans chapter 3, Paul makes a great big deal of this. And, uh, and we should too. We should really recognize, you know, that to put ourselves back before the cross, to try to think, is, is, is it hard to take ourselves out of our own context because we're church-age saints that were born and saved 2,000 years after the cross, you know? There's so many things we take for granted, that we believe in Jesus Christ, we receive eternal life, we receive the Holy Spirit, our sins are forgiven, all these things are done, we are baptized into union in Christ, we're seated at the right hand of the Father. All those things weren't happening in the Old Testament. Okay? The position we have in Christ was not an Old Testament position. And even the removal of sins, they had forgiveness, but not removal. And so in Romans 3, we've got kind of a, uh, it's, it's, it's a lengthy development, but it's significant. Verses 21 through 26, making this point, specifically showing why Jesus Christ and his death in 33 AD was so historic. So we're trying to put ourselves back in a BC kind of a time frame, right? Pretend you're a believer in the ancient Babylon or whatever, all right? I mean, you're just, and the Messiah hasn't come yet. Recognize that. Messiah hasn't come yet. He's been promised. Seed of the woman's been promised. 
and all the other refinements of that down through the, the Davidic virgin in Bethlehem. Okay? And so we're looking for, <coughs> we're looking for Messiah. So it says in uh, Romans 3.21, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So this was a revelation that was anticipated and uh, given in the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Faith in Christ, Jesus is the only object for faith. The provision is eternal life. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now we get to it. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now when he's describing this, it's a historically finished event. He's writing Romans in 55, 51 AD, right? Looking back, 52 AD. Looking back 20 years to the cross in 33 AD. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. See, there was a lot going on there at that cross and after. Even during three days while He was in the grave, there was a display. There was a proclamation in hell. God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And we talked about propitiation being the mercy seat, being the the pinnacle of Old Testament approach. Satisfaction. Satisfaction. They never could get to the throne of grace. The ultimate approach for Aaron and those high priests was satisfaction. It was the mercy seat. And so we see the the issue there. Alright? Demonstration. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Notice, not just to exercise His righteousness. Not just to satisfy righteousness through the application of justice, through the condemnation of Jesus Christ, through all the wrath that was poured out on those sins. All that was done in darkness, but now He has to display everything. To display a demonstration, I say, of His righteousness. So verse 25 I'm losing my place here because the demonstration gets repeated over and over again. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. He passed over the sins previously committed. That's why He has to demonstrate. That's why He has to display. That's why He has to say, look here folks, For 4,000 years now, I've been passing over sins. For 4,000 years now, I've been passing over. Not removing sin, but passing over. He even called the Jewish people and gave them a festival called Passover so that His covenant people would be able to teach this doctrine, so that the Jews could teach the Gentiles, so that all of Old Testament uh, regenerate humanity would know that their sins are not yet removed. Their sins are atoned or covered. That atonement is a covering. Kafir is to cover. And so to cover. And being covered, when I see the blood, I will pass over. Okay, Because they're covered by the blood, He passes over. But as far as angels and humans are concerned, 
We're all temporal beings. Angels and humans alike are all temporal. We're created. We're finite. We're moving forward one day per day. And we want to roll back the clock, but we can't roll back the clock. We're just moving forward, moving forward, moving forward. And for 4,000 years or 5,000 years, he was passing over sins. He was covering them. He was forgiving them. He was, uh, believers then were going to Abraham's bosom to be comforted, while unbelievers were going to torments. Now, was he right for doing that? Was he fair for doing that? Because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. You see, and so this is why he makes this demonstration. He's showing angels and men alike. He's showing all of creation what he himself was looking forward to. Because when he sees the blood, he passes over. When he saw the cross, he passed over. But he puts these things all on display. And he does so when Jesus dies on the cross. And so it is a demonstration. It's a public demonstration. It's also a conquering as he lords it over the disarmed adversaries. And so to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Okay, so just chew on these things. Think about them. They're vital. The only way that he could have that kind of forbearance and pass over was because he was looking to the sacrifice his son would make. There is no other way. There is no other way. People today want God to pass over because it's, well, it's just a little thing. Oh, well, it's minor. Oh, well, you're a God of love. Oh, well. God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. You know, they've got this pluralism thing going. They've got this, this moral relativism whereby, you know, God can, he can wink at sin. He can, yeah, that's all right. I love you anyway. You can come to heaven. Wait a minute. On what basis is he just to excuse those who reject his son? There's no basis at all. And in fact, if he doesn't cast them in the lake of fire, how ugly is that towards his son? Why did he put his son through that? if he doesn't put the unbeliever in the lake of fire for all eternity. That would be an unjust God. And so it comes down to this. And then it's tied together then in verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God the Father has to demonstrate that he is eternally just for sacrificing his son in the way that he did. And his son has to demonstrate that he's totally just to be the justifier. How, how can you be the justifier if you don't prove yourself to be just? Okay? That's the point that's being made there. Now that's deep. That goes into some realms there that, that don't get, don't get uh, dealt with very frequently. But I think that's huge. And so in the Old Testament they had priests that, had, that were appointed to serve in these two functions. They were appointed to serve in gifts and to serve in sin sacrifices. Now, for us, we don't have to do the sin sacrifices. Jesus did the once and for all sacrifice. So we give gifts. We have a living sacrifice. We have a priesthood now that's far beyond anything that the Levitical priests ever dreamed of. And that's, uh, that's significant too. All right, on to the ignorant and the misguided. Now, these sound funny and they sound actually a little convicting. Um, or maybe even insulting. Every time I read ignorant and misguided, I think of myself. This is the, uh, and, and you need to deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. But actually, 
It's, um, it's, it's actually more specific than that. And actually it's more specific because it's a part of Mosaic law that defines these things. All right? And so uh, it's not just, you know, ignorant people in general. Uh, I mean, they're everywhere. We're talking about specifically, though, we're talking about uh, defiant, willful sins and aspects of things that are happening there when you should know. When God has revealed His Word and you are purposely ignoring it, there is a, uh, a, uh, an application to be made there. So, looking at verse 2 then. Again, with respect to human high priests, every high priest taken from among men is appointed to offer things uh, uh, on behalf of men. Okay, And it says, he, uh, he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. And so every high priest that's selected from Aaron on down, that they themselves have these same weaknesses. They're sinners, right? They're sinners, they're hard-hearted, they're thick-headed human beings. And so they are equipped, they are suited to deal gently as, uh, as one that needs the same kind of grace that they're ministering. So... Let's understand that. Being invested into the priesthood does not make a person any better than anyone else. All right? It doesn't make them any better than anyone else. You and I are believer priests. Does that make us better than those unbelievers out there we're given the gospel to? Of course not. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. Now, does not make a person better than anyone else. And this is a principle we have here, and I think it relates well to principles we've seen in 2.17 and 18 and 4.15. But, but there is a contrast to be made because, of course, Christ is better than anyone else. Okay, that's a given. Uh, but he's not better than anyone else by virtue of him being appointed that, is, is what I'm trying to say. He's better because of who he is. And then the appointment comes. So it's still a valid principle. Being invested into the priesthood does not make a person better than anyone else. And I hope in our evangelism that comes across, I hope in, uh, in our, our interpersonal relations as it comes across, okay? There's no, nothing uh, better. It's not, a, it's not that comparison thing anyway, like the, the rich people versus the widow in that, in that contrast. The ideas of superiority, and, and all that is is just Satan puffing us up. That's just Satan making us prideful. The whole idea being, hey, I'm with you. I identify. Remember chapter 2, verses 17 and 18? He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. It is a sympathy. It equips him to be sympathetic. It equips him to minister. And there's no tone of superiority whatsoever. And in all respects, if we're really going to apply this grace principle, we would always consider the other to be more important than ourselves. So if there's any kind of superiority, it's said our consideration of the other person is more important than us. And just proceed on that basis. No superiority there. And, and the priests were selected to be the teachers. That didn't make them any better. All right, chapter 4 and verse 15. 
which we read a little bit ago. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He walked our walk. He knows what we're dealing with because he dealt with it. We will have a contrast drawn, though, by the time we get to chapter 7, that he was appointed a son made perfect forever. I think we read this verse a little while ago also. The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. You know, when the high priest came out on the Day of Atonement, he'd finished everything and he came out and everything was all done. Was he made perfect forever? No. He was going to do the same thing again next year. Same thing again next year for every year of his life until he was dead, then the son would keep doing it. And again, after again, uh, year after year after year, there is the constant reminder of sin. Jesus Christ, though, is made perfect forever. All right, so we'll deal with that too. Now, this ignorant and misguided. There is a provision for the ignorant and the misguided. They do have priestly provision. The priestly provision comes, first of all, through teaching. Priestly provision comes, first of all, through remedying uh, ignorance. <laughs> okay? There's a remedy for ignorance. It's called teaching. It's called the Word of God. And uh, we're, we're all able to do this. I love the fact that the Greek word for ignorant is agnostic. <laughs> so, you ever encounter those people? Okay? Sometimes you encounter an atheist, but then he wants to be more intellectual about it, so it maybe feels foolish to call himself an atheist. So he calls himself an agnostic. And I love it when they say, well, I'm agnostic. I say, I'm sorry. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're at least willing to confess your ignorance because the Greek agnostic means ignorant, and we can fix ignorance. We can provide the information. I, I got gospel information for you that uh, will remedy all of your agnostic ignorance. And we can take it on that basis. And so that's why you have priests. That's why you have a priesthood. Teaching doctrine, setting the example, living the Word of God themselves as an example to be followed. And so if the Jewish people were to follow their priest's provision, then they would not be ignorant or misguided, would they? All right. Let's take a look at Numbers 15. And I think what you're going to see here is the basis for Hebrews 5.2. Numbers 15. And uh, not to read the entire chapter, but to get enough of this. Because the ignorant and the misguided have priestly provision. There's provision. God's, God's, God has made provision for the ignorant and the misguided. He's revealed His Word. He's equipped His servants. He's got teachers ready to go. He's got older believers on hand. There is provision for the ignorant and the misguided. That's true in the Old Testament under Levitical priesthood. That's true in the New Testament in the church. The ignorant and misguided, we've got all things pertaining to life and godliness. Everything we need, God's given us. So there is provision. And if we sin, if we, if we, we fail anyway, even knowing what we know, we all sin, right? If we do sin, we've got an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we're provided for. But there is a, an aspect in terms of the willfully defiant 
And for them, there is no sacrifice. For them, there is no provision. What do they get? And this, I think, becomes important. Not only today, but something to chew on when we get into chapter 6, something to chew on when we get into chapter 10. Because some of the warnings that are coming later on actually stem from this concept here today. So, what are we dealing with? Uh, Numbers 15. Laws for Canaan, and uh, through the early verses there, and then the law of the sojourner in verse 14. How about that? Maybe some people that don't belong here come here. And then what do we do? If an alien sojourns with you. Okay, you know what that is? This is, this is right out of the newspapers. This is today's debate, right? Illegal immigration. What do we do with someone that doesn't belong here? They're an alien. But they're sojourning here. They're not even applying for citizenship. They're not, they're not trying to become you. They're just sojourning here. Or one who may be among you throughout your generations. In other words, he's, he wants to put down roots and join you. He wants to immigrate. Like Ruth did, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. And he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, he shall do. How about that? Your, law, your laws apply to him. There's to be one law, one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. All right, that distracted me. I wasn't supposed to go there. That's just uh, the law applies to the alien. All right, and then verses 17 and following, verses 22 and following, here we go. Oh, there's so much here. This is fun. First fruits, first dough, first cake. All right, verse 22. But when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, unwittingly, pay attention, and even all the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment and, the on, and onward through your generations, then it shall be, if it is done unintentionally, without knowledge of the congregation, that all the congregation shall offer one bowl for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance, and one male goat for the sin offering. Then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and they will be forgiven, for it was an error, and they have brought their offering an offering by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them, for it happened to all the people through error. Now that's pretty clear. I mean, that gets stressed again and again and again. But the willfully defiant, what does it say next? Verse 27 And then we get down to verses 30 and 31. All right. Um, So verse 27, also if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, for the alien who sojourns among them. Now, verse 30, but the person who does anything defiantly, defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people. Is there a sacrifice for this guy? 
Is there a provision for this guy? Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be upon him. There was no Levitical offering for this willful, defiant sin. There never was at any time in the Old Testament. That's why when David did his adultery and his murder and all that, there was no Levitical hope for him. There was no offering. There was no sacrifice. There was no restoration. Only a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And it's interesting. Now, see, this is going to have an application in the church age and it gets conveyed now in the book of Hebrews. So whereas the ignorant and the misguided have priestly provision, the willfully defiant do not. And so when we have warnings like Hebrews 10... That's why I say what we're getting this morning in chapter 5 is kind of a, a foretaste of themes that will be developed more comprehensively later. This is what I'm talking about. So when we get to Hebrews chapter 10, this now gets spelled out. And hopefully it gets spelled out in a way that we go, oh, I get it now. That's connecting back to numbers. That's connecting back to the Levitical priesthood, whereby there were some things that had sacrifices and other things there was no sacrifice. Likewise, for us, and this warning here. So we have a priesthood in uh, verses 19 through 25 that we'll deal with. And then verse 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Okay? And it has nothing to do with losing your salvation. It has nothing to do with, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross once. He can't do that again. It has nothing to do with needing to get saved a second time. It has nothing to do with losing your eternal life. It has nothing to do with all of the foolish, tragic, pathetic things that Arminians try to do with the book of Hebrews. What it's doing is drawing upon the Levitical priesthood and bringing it now into our priesthood and showing us that willful, defiant sin is still a big deal in our church age reality. And it was a big deal for them, and it's a bigger deal for us. So if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Think about Nadab and Abihu. They burned strange fire and they knew better. They knew not to bring that strange fire. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? It's carried across now into the church age. For you and for me, are we less accountable or more accountable? More accountable. How much more? Infinitely. Infinitely. It's because ours is substance. Theirs was shadow. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? You're just walking on Jesus. Has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Yeah, he shed his blood for me. Who cares? I want to do this. And I defiantly commit this sin and and defiantly, and it's, not, it's more than just an individual act of sin. We're talking about 
just of finally walking out there and pursuing a, a, a anti-biblical sin death style. I don't call it a lifestyle. Regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. That's what we do. And is there a priesthood sacrifice that will put you back into a, into a place where you can function in the, in the tabernacle? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So this is, a, uh, this is an extraordinary warning that's given. And the priests that receive this letter, they're gonna, when they got that warning in, in uh, Hebrews 10.26, immediately Numbers 15 was, was on their mind. All right. Verse 3. <clears throat> and because of it, because he himself is uh, beset with weaknesses, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And next week we'll come back and we'll deal with this. We're going to talk about the sacrifices the Levites had to give for themselves, because every last one of them was a sinner. First thing they had to do was stand there as a sinner and bring a sacrifice for their own sin. Then they were in a position where they could intercede on behalf of their fellow sinners. And so uh, we'll teach that for what it was, and then we'll celebrate the fact that Jesus was himself without sin. But he took our sins. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so that too becomes, uh, I think, just a thrill, an unbelievable thrill to consider what he did to produce our eternal life. All right. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth and the blessing we have to assemble together. I thank you for the priesthood that we have in Christ and the reality, Father, that by his cleansing we enter within the veil. What a, what a provision, Father. What an intimacy and, uh, and a fellowship that we have. The uh, Old Testament high priest was in there all by himself on pain of death. And all of us are in there together, Father, walking in the newness of life. And uh, these are just uh, almost uh, hard to describe in some respects deep, deep things for our priesthood. And I thank you that the author of Hebrews laid this out there, that we can take it in, we can make our application. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this is our final